from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is Monday, the 25th of September. I hope you had a wonderful weekend, made a little money, got a little bit ahead. We have a great show today. We're going to talk about Mighty Licious Cookies, and we're going to meet two educators who are proposing a new, better way of educating our kids. And you know, I am so interested in for profit education. So we got a cram packed show, so we need to go ahead and get started right now. Let's do that. Here we go. Very excited to introduce another great entrepreneur. This story really hits home. Carolyn Haler is with us. She is the founder and CEO of a company called Mighty Licious. She was working for a company you've never heard of called Morgan Stanley, where the secretaries make $100,000 a year. So she must have been making like a billion dollars a year or something like that and gave it all up because she couldn't find a cookie. It worked with her celiac disease. She needed something gluten-free. They all sucked. And she therefore created Mighty Licious, which is a gluten-free cookie company. It's available at places that you've never heard of, like Walmart and Amazon, and they actually taste good. Carolyn, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. All right. So Morgan, you were working there, obviously a high stress lifestyle, by the way, do you think everyone should be forced to go back to work like Morgan's doing? What are your thoughts? Um, I, uh, I don't know. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> I'm undecided. Well, as an entrepreneur now, it's not, you know, you're the one getting to make the decision. So Obviously, that career was not enough. Tell us about the inspiration, what was going on. I'm sorry you have celiac. I have Crohn's, and so that's what I was referring to when I said I feel simpatico with you. What we eat is like life critical, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2012, and I was 30 at the time and had spent my whole life eating everything. I lived in Italy and eating all the pasta and had all the croissants and birthday cake and cupcakes and all the things that make life enjoyable. Um, and didn't realize at the time, but food is culture, it's family, it's community and it's ceremony. And it's, those things are very important to not only our digestive health, but also our mental health. And so I was diagnosed with celiac disease and then had to change my lifestyle and by 2017, when I founded my company, I was just literally tired, tired of eating food that was not ceremonial and not exciting and not even edible in, in many instances. And I was working in finance at the time, was very stressed out and decided that I wanted to have a cookie. And that was it. That was the catalyst. What is gluten? 
Mm-hmm. And why is it bad for the body? But why is it make stuff so delicious? I mean, I understand sugar. You know, mm-hmm. sugar, you know, it's sweet. But what's gluten mm-hmm. got to do with it? Yeah, gluten is everything, and it's very unique. Gluten is a protein that I and many people who have either celiac disease or gluten intolerance or even Crohn's disease can't digest. In my case, with celiac disease, I actually create antibodies. If I eat something with the protein of gluten in it, I create an antibody that then attacks my colon. So it's killing me very slowly, and it's actually very painful in the moment as well. Um it is very critical to baking and is kind of unique to wheat flour. And that pro- that protein of gluten is actually the strength that you have in a baked good. When you think about like a piece of bread or a croissant, you can push down on it and it'll pop back up. And that is the protein, the gluten proteins in that flour. And it allows flour to expand, to be flexible, to be tender. Um, it also allows baked goods and flour to brown and to caramelize where aside from sugar, we get a lot of that sweetness from sugar. You get a lot of those caramely, buttery toasted notes and the, the color, the brown toasted color from the gluten. So gluten is the structure. It's the strength. It's also the aroma. It's also the flavor and it's the color. So it's used in a lot, in addition to things like pasta and bread, it's used in a lot of foods like Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola has caramel color, so it's used as a colorant. It's used as a filler, so oftentimes spices like cinnamon will have trace amounts of gluten in it because they use it as a filler. It's also used as a preservative. They use it in things like deli meats to actually preserve the meat. So someone like me with celiac disease or someone with Crohn's disease actually can't eat a whole variety of foods that one would imagine are gluten-free but actually have gluten in them. All right. So you were craving the cookie. What happened? What did you do? What happened next? Yeah, it was actually, I was actually standing shopping. I was at like a TJ Maxx or some store like that. And I'd been, it was Christmas time. So I'd been shopping for hours and I forgot to eat. And I, what I picked up a bag of cookies off of the shelf and they said gluten-free and artisanal. And I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. I never seen this before. And I took one bite and it was so bad. That I literally didn't continue eating the cookie. I put it back in the bag and I was like, hmm, maybe I can just put this back on the shelf. Of course I did it. I bought them and I threw out the cookies before I even left the store. And I was like, you know what? This is not okay. People need a cookie. When you're sad and you're hungry or you're tired or you're stressed out, like a cookie is supposed to make you happy. That's really the only purpose of a cookie (laughs) is to make you happy and to make you feel good and give you those endorphins. And I walked out of that store and I did nothing but, you know, create recipes and test recipes for the rest of that year until I had a prototype that was not only as good, I think, as the best cookie that I've ever tasted, but better because I made brown butter. Yeah. So I took the classic chocolate chip cookie and this and was like, you know what? What would take it to the next level? And I was like, brown butter. <laughs> Who doesn't like brown butter? It's got that sort of nutty butterscotch undertone flavor. And when you combine that with a delicate flavor of vanilla and a chocolate chip cookie, and then sort of a little bit of those bitter notes of the bittersweet chocolate chips, I was like, that is better than any cookie I've ever had. And it was, um, I actually was 
created my first three recipes in my studio apartment in New York and like a 24 inch sort of landlord special stove, um, found some recipes I was really proud of that were really stable and I can reproduce, put them in a tin tie coffee bag that I ordered off of Amazon and walked into the Whole Foods on 86th street. And I was like, Hey, I've got these cookies. And at this point I was just looking for feedback. Cause that's what they treat, teach you in business schools, create a prototype, get feedback, you know, improve the prototype, get more feedback, et cetera. Walked into this Whole Foods, went to the information desk, and the, the woman behind the information desk was like, oh, go talk to Chris. He's in the bakery section. He's behind the cakes. He'd love to try them. I find Chris. Chris is like, this is the best gluten-free cookie I have ever tasted. Go down to Union Square, go to Brooklyn, ask for the team leader there, and if we all like your cookie, we'll email the regional office and we can onboard you as like a local supplier. This was on a Thursday and by Monday I was being onboarded. Damn. Yeah. And so I immediately went from like prototyping in my kitchen (laughs) to like, Oh my gosh, I need licenses. I need a commercial space. I need to figure out how to manufacture and package cookies, which someone like me, whose background is like in finance, (laughs) this is a whole new sort of world to be discovered all right stop 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 let me get some backup or follow-up mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. first of all you i have for a long time had a self-proclaimed badge of honor that i brag about and you've just ripped it from me Carolyn. <laughs> and so now i have to self-proclaim you uh, i don't know what it's called but i always used to brag that you know how everyone, the authors, the famous authors, send off 100 book proposals and get 99 rejections, and finally the 100th person says yes. Yes, You've yes, heard that yeah. stereotype yes. trope, yes. right? Mm-hmm. I sent one letter to McGraw-Hill, and we had a deal a week later mm-hmm. for my first book. Unheard mm-hmm. of. Unheard of. Absolutely. Until you come in and blow it away with your <laughs> Thursday to Monday story, your Thursday <laughs> to Monday silliness, making me look slow and inept. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, that is not what I was expecting to have happen, but it, it, did. it did. Okay. Unbelievable. All right. A little more follow up. What makes the cookie so good? I mean, does it have sugar and? Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm on the website right now, and they mm -hmm. just look amazing. Right, and they look good because they they a lot of times, and I know you know this because you've eaten a gluten free cookie. The cookie is like this little dry hockey puck. It's very pale. It's um can be gritty. It can be chalky. Always sandy, and it's like a very un appetizing thing to eat. And I wanted to sort of flip all of that and make this cookie so good that when I tell you it's gluten-free, you don't believe me. That's always our objective. And yes, these are, they do have sugar. This is not a health food in the sense that like, it's not a um, cliff bar. You're not going to eat this to lose weight. (laughs) This isn't going to become part of your like, you know, primary diet this is something to enjoy 170 (laughs) calories per serving that's two cookies that's not bad it's not bad and the cookies are large this is the cookies about two to two and a half inches per cookie so it's the size of a normal chocolate chip cookie you're not pulling out like a little chips ahoy or something like that often cookies will be like seven grams or three grams of sugar and you pull out the cookie into the size of a quarter you're like well yeah yeah." (laughs) Uh (laughs) it's only a seven gram cookie so it's still half 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 the cookie of sugar um this is a this is more of a dessert um 
it's indulgent, but better for you. And the real secret sauce to baking gluten-free and anyone who's tried it will tell you it's all about the flour because the rest of a cookie is pretty standard. There's butter in there. There's vanilla. There's a leavening. There's salt. Um, there's brown sugar. There's white sugar. And that's that's the basis of a cookie. What makes gluten-free baking so challenging is that you don't have the protein and the gluten. So um, you have to use other flours that are lower in protein content. So they don't have the flexibility. Um, they don't have the strength, but also what I've learned the hard way. Um, and even commercially, like I am buying now truckloads of flour at a time I'm getting a whole tractor trailer of flour. Um, and it's really, really hard to find, um, non-wheat flour that is milled to the spec that is necessary for baking. If you've ever put your fingers in wheat flour and you feel it, it's very smooth, it's very silky, it's because it's been milled to a powder-like consistency. When you buy rice flour, which is the basis of most gluten-free products, there's also other flours that can be thrown in there like amaranth, garbanzo bean, sorghum flour. They're built, they're, they're milled for cooking. So they're going to be added to sauces. They're going to be used to like batter chicken, things like that. They're not going to be put in a cook to a cookie. Um, and so they're not milled as, as finely as they is necessary for baking. And when you're baking a ba something, you need the flour and the liquid ingredients to homogenize and bake into a solid form within eight to 12 minutes, which is very, very fast. And if your flour particles are not small enough, they will not absorb the moisture and you will get a baked good that is either not homogenized at all or over homogenized because you've added a lot of flour to make it cakey and then it's going to be dry and gritty and gross. So we actually have found the perfect flour blend. We only use rice flour because rice flour is the only flour that is actually neutral in flavor. It doesn't have a gritty texture. It doesn't have a cakey texture or chalky texture, and it doesn't have a bitter aftertaste. Um, so we only use white flour and then some starches. We found the perfect ratio. And then I actually work with the mills to mill it to a speck so that when you put your fingers in it, it feels like cornstarch, doesn't feel like sand. And yeah. that is what makes our cookies so delicious and so um so have such a wonderful feel on your palate and they also have a neutral flavor. So they don't taste bitter or strange. And did you have any sort of cooking background? Was it your super hobby? I, I, I see you went to a school called Yale. Is that a cooking <laughs> school or something? I, Yale is you know, I, I know is that, not for example, for Colgate has a really good, you know, hotel <laughs> management program. Uh, yes. I've not heard of Yale. Uh, no, I, I went that? to Yale. I went to Yale for business oh, and it, finance. Did I mispronounce that school's <laughs> name? <laughs> I just have to correct you so I don't get in trouble with them. Um, <laughs> no, I went. So my background is in um, supply chain and economics. I'm a big data geek. I have a degree in economics and statistics. And then I went to Yale for finance and business. And I love um do you read Gourmet Magazine? I mean, when does no. the cooking stuff come in? <laughs> I've always baked. So baking is actually, so it seems like a big leap, but baking is all chemistry. It is, no, it I is get very, that. That makes sense. Very, sure. very different from cooking or cooking. You can be like, you know, tossing things around, throwing in ingredients. It's not very specific. It can come out great. Cooking is, it's chemistry and it's 
very specific. And if you mess up anything, even by 1%, say, the whole thing can be destroyed destroyed and you have to throw out 600 pounds of batter and start again and that's oh, that happened devastating. To me just the other day i hate yeah. when that happens devastating it's yeah. devastating um no one wants that to happen even things like uh, trash people you know, won't pick up 600 pounds of battery <laughs> no they won't it's no, no it's and you terrible can't put it down the drain you're, you're, you can't no. no no and you just throwing out food is not something anyone wants to do um and even things like we'll we'll have the recipe perfect it'll be It'll be working perfectly, and then a, a weather system will come through, and yeah, the environmental yeah, sure. pressure will change. Or like the a- sea elevation will change by yeah. a thousand <laughs> feet or something, you know, overnight. <laughs> Yeah. And when that happens. <laughs> that's that is devastating. Um yeah, so it is it is very technical and I found like I've always enjoyed baking. It's always been a hobby of mine. I wouldn't call it a super hobby. It's just something like I get bored easily. So if I'm on vacation and everyone is relaxing, I'm baking. <laughs> like that's what I do to decompress and right. but it was also something that I had to learn how to do in more depth as I was diagnosed with celiac disease, because so many of the foods that you buy um, ready to eat are just not acceptable. Let's just use that word. They're not acceptable for for eating. Um, So I had to start baking for myself, which is also as someone who is getting up at 5 a.m. every morning to get into finance, to get into work, and then not getting home until eight or nine o'clock, baking is the last thing you want to do when you're that tired. Um, and so a lot of the convenience that bread offers in your life is taken away. And when you're a busy professional or you're a busy parent and you've got a lot of things going on, the last thing you want to do is like be up until midnight baking bread. Um, that is not, um, really a manageable thing. Um, so I learned to bake on the weekends. I learned to not eat things that required gluten. So I was eating a lot of salad and bananas. That's her. So <laughs> take us back into the story, right? You've got it. Uh, Monday in Whole Foods as a local, right? Yeah. Which is different mm-hmm. from a national or something like yep. that. Yeah. So what happened? And tell us, keep going down the story a little bit more. Sure. So I. And so, so some we, theme listeners is the bootstrap here. We haven't thrown that word out yet, but so far, yes. she owns 100% of the company and 100% of the profits, and she spent no money except for she bought that 600 pounds of uh, uh, mix that had to get thrown out. But other yeah, than that, yeah. we're keeping score financially too, Carolyn, behind the scenes. Yeah. So I started the company with like maybe $3,000. So I had to get some licenses and things like that. Um, I got a commercial kitchen in Queens and we um, launched in three Whole Foods in Manhattan. That was the very beginning. And I was making everything by hand. So I was working, still working full time. Actually, I got a job with Edward Jones as a financial advisor. Cause they're like, we will pay you. <laughs> and I was like, well, they'll pay me until they fire me. So I'll see how long I can make. I actually worked with them for three years until finally I was like, I can't manage both. Um, so I'm a financial advisor from Monday to Friday because the markets close on Friday and then Saturday and Sunday, I'm in the commercial kitchen baking for whole foods. And it's just me. I'm physically baking every single cookie, hand scooping them with a hand scooper um, myself and then packaging them all and then driving them and delivering them to three whole foods in Manhattan. By the end of that year, I had expanded to all of the Manhattan Whole Foods, and by the fall, in within six months, I had expanded to the Northeast and North Atlantic region. Right, had how, grown. Are, how are you selling them? 
how are how is the demand being created so that people know to just go? just word of mouth just no people way. yeah i had i had no money i literally had no money <laughs> I, was like, I thought you were every- making a million dollars a year prior to that or a billion dollars a year i heard <laughs> Yeah, I, that a billion dollars is a lot. Um, actually, I think the secretaries make as much, if not more, than they pay <laughs> some of their employees. I was, you know, I was living in Manhattan oh, and having a lovely, a lovely lifestyle. Yep. But I wasn't. I also sort of in the beginning, it all sort of felt like I was very committed to it. That's obvious from, you know, no one goes and bakes a nine-hour shift twice a twice a twice in a weekend just because they're like doing it for a hobby, you're like committed at that point. You're not working all five days a week and then baking 18 hours on the weekend because you're joking about it, but I still hadn't like sunk into me. So I was just making these cookies and, um, we were going to whole foods and going, you know, you're buying a lot of these are like, okay, let's do 10 stores. I went to 10 stores and I had to hire a couple of people to come help me bake on the weekends and package. And they would, um, they would help me deliver them because I can no longer, I didn't even have a car. Right. So I was like renting a car to deliver them. I was physically going to like Columbus circle and um, unloading boxes. So they were helping me with that because they had a car. And then we went back to them and said, you know, this is going well. And they said, yeah, we want to go the entire Northeast region. And I was like, great. Got the contact information for North Atlantic region. They said, we'll take you. And at that point it was unsustainable. There was no amount of baking on the weekends that could satisfy that demand. So I moved to a commercial kitchen over in Teterboro, New Jersey. And all of this, I was funding and financing myself. Fortunately, my background is in asset management. <laughs> so I have a lot of experience in understanding sort of the balance sheet and how to leverage debt and things like that. Um, so that I didn't have to get investors. I didn't get investors until 2021. All right. And how many cookies are you selling now a year or a month or however you measure it? I actually don't know. What's the volume in terms of the, another metric, maybe money, how much money are you making or how many employees, how big have you gotten? It's still just me. I have, it's still just me. I'm still just managing this. We raised $5 million in capital in 2021. I also raised that in 48 hours via a, a crowdfunding platform called republic.co. Um, so I now have the capital I need. I have outsourced things like accounting and my operations. I have some, um, support there. I can only say that we're selling as we used to be selling, you know, pallets and now we're selling truckloads. I don't know because every month is different because we're growing so rapidly. We onboarded Walmart. So everything is sort of like in flux all the time. Um, and my accountants and I are constantly trying to keep up with <laughs> what's going on. Um, so I don't have those numbers off the top of my head. Um, I do know that we're going to hit a million dollars in sales this year. Congratulations. You sound like my grandfather, the man I'm named after. He was infamous. He was a farmer, dirt farmer during the depression and world war one. And, you know, had a really hard life raising tobacco and stuff like that. And you'd ask him how many cows you have, Mr. Jim. And he'd spend 30 minutes explaining why he couldn't tell how many cows he had. (laughs) This one jumped the fence and this one's pregnant and that one may have died and this, you know, and he'd go on and on. As soon as his kids were out of earshot and it was just my father, he'd go, I got 1,912, you know, he he knew it to the heartbeat, you know, he knew it to the the pound. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
every month is just, I mean, this year we did $300,000 in January, but then in July and August is not, people are not eating cookies in July and August. So we're not, I think we did like 60 grand. So it's every month is different. And right. then I don't even know what's for the year happen. though. There's the number. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And what, then we go, you know, uh, so anyway, exactly yeah um, all i can say is damn impressive damn impressive it's an amazing thank story thank you yeah i mean we're we're it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting um business to be in the food business um it's really um tangible compared to selling stocks it's food is very tangible, but there's all these little loopholes and gatekeepers you have to get through and behind and, you know, handshakes that have to be done. It's, it's fascinating. Any marketing now, or is it still word of mouth? Um, I have, so I have hired marketing. I do have the marketing now. It's still not a huge expense for me. I'm sort of marketing is new to me. I have sort of a, a background in a lot of things like supply chain and operations, the finance piece, obviously, um, but marketing is sort of this new thing. So I am, I am cautiously putting my toe in marketing. So we have Instagram going, um, we are now doing direct to consumer marketing, which is starting to pick up. But again, I'm doing everything cautiously, making sure that all my metrics are being hit before we put a lot of money into it but my goal for next year is to do a million dollars in direct-to-consumer sales um after the learnings we've we've done for this year direct-to-consumer um, that means through your website yeah through my website instagram facebook right. a lot of buyers on yeah. amazon lots lots of lots of baby boomers buying cookies on facebook fyi really Interesting. yeah very interesting. And I probably shouldn't say this on the air, but yeah. So a lot of our target, I'm a millennial. A lot of our targeting is towards sort of a millennial better for you. We have now we're launching, um, actually next month we're launching four vegan flavors. So we have seven total flavors. They're all gluten-free and kosher certified. We will have four flavors now that are gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO certified and kosher certified. Um, we're very excited about it because making something that's vegan and gluten-free is like, just it's like, I don't know what that is. It's an, it's an impossibility. Um, but these cookies are delicious. My number one best-selling cookie is our vegan oatmeal coconut cookie. It outsells our brown butter chocolate chip, which I is unheard of in America. I cookie though. It is. I know. How so it's, coconutty so that's what's, is it? It's very coconutty. Very and that's what's so surprising about this cookie because this is America and chocolate chip is the rules supreme right it's just the number one seller and we have two chocolate chip flavors and for a very long time they were number one and number two we have our brown butter chocolate chip which is number one our vegan chocolate chip which was number two not surprising our oatmeal our vegan oatmeal coconut which is a 100 year old recipe from my wife's side of the family that i tasted at a holiday and i was like i have to make this cookie is our number one selling cookie and Coconut is a very polarizing flavor. People either love it or they hate it. There's not a lot of people who are like, eh, it's okay. Yeah, I'm on the hate side of Yeah, I understand. I get it. I love coconut myself. I love that cookie, but I get it. I understand it's a it's a powerful flavor. So if you're not into it, it's not something you're gonna buy. And that is that's our number one bestseller. Well, 
Carolyn, we need to wrap it up. If you ever need like a body double because you're afraid you're going to get assassinated, I know you're doppelganger, by the way. I know <laughs> oh, someone you do? who looks exactly like you. <laughs> I uh, am German, and I get that a lot. Okay. So you <laughs> have many like doppelgangers. The, uh, the German face is, is something like I went to Germany when I was in my 20s, and I was like, wow. <laughs> oh, okay. there's a lot of there's a lot of people here who look like me and my whole family actually <laughs> so i i will get stopped by people at the uh in a grocery store and be like we went to high school together i'd be like i don't think so and they're like yeah california i'm like yeah i'm from new york <laughs> it happens to me a lot but i appreciate it is she very beautiful yes and she also has the yeah. same hairdo <laughs> that you do in the same glasses and everything so. wow well, anyway, Sandra, and i also almost went to colby i was accepted to colby and went to middlebury instead oh I've my sister it. went to middlebury it's a wonderful a wonder the nescac schools are amazing yes. i had what such they an amazing experience they're not anymore oh Maybe, know, why the, the politics have taken over middlebury to a cuckoo Level, you know, the only time you read about Middlebury is when one of the professors goes to the hospital because they've gotten beaten up by their own students. So <laughs> that's not a good sign. That's not a that's good look. A, that's uh, not a good look. No. Anyway, how do we get us some cookies? How do we spell mighty licious? It looks just the way it spells, I guess. I want to yeah, some so cookies. It's mighty, it? it's mighty and delicious. So it's mighty licious, the exact same, the way you think you would spell that. Um, you get them at mightylicious.com um we ship nationwide we send tons of cookies to alaska hawaii and california you would not believe um if you buy three bags or more shipping is free um we have a best sellers pack we have a try every flavor pack you can also get them on amazon um if we are in walmart's in 40 states so you might see us in your local walmart super center um but mightylicious.com is really if you want you want to choose from every single flavor that's where you find us and you're going to invite me to stand not with you on the podium but on the very very edge of the podium when you ring the bell when you go public right i get to be there that day not part of the core i don't want to absolutely part of, i just want to be on the outskirts or watching Absolutely. Thank when we you. ring that bell, it's it's going to happen. All righty. Carolyn Haler, H-A-E-L-E-R, H-A-E-L-E-R. You are an amazing story. Thank you so much for being with us. It was mighty delicious. Thank you so much. And we will be right back. Excited to introduce two great guests now and a little bit off topic, but you know how important education is to me. And I believe that education could be a great for-profit business for you. You know, I started off in for-profit education decades and decades ago. There are two new educators today, though. They have a book out and we're going to talk about it. Our guests are named Landon Mascarenas and Donnie Tran. Together, they are author of The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. They both have very active careers in the education system. Donnie Tran is the co-founder of the Open Systems Institute, along with Landon. And they both have, or Landon, are you a co-chair there? Or I'm, not, I'm got too many windows open right now. Anyway, Landon from Colorado and the school systems there and Donnie from Georgia and Boston school systems there. Welcome both of you. How are you doing? 
Doing wonderful. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having us. All right. What are you proposing in the book? I read that it's very practical and not only does it deal with pedagogy, but it's also practical. What's your proposal? Donnie? Uh, so we believe that something that's been holding back the kind of progress we want to see in education uh, is the lack of ability for school leaders and district leaders and education leaders generally to co-create and co-produce and be really deeply responsive to the communities in which they are embedded. Uh, and so we, through some years of work and collaboration with a number of incredible leaders from across the country, have co-developed uh, discipline and a series of principles that help leaders in many parts of the education system do that really deeply responsive, open, co-creative work with families, with young people, with business leaders, with community leaders, so that uh, we can really attain the kind of outcomes for young people that we want to see. Um, and we, we just see that uh, many of our educational institutions right now are just far too closed off. Uh, they're, they're not really... Um, uh, accessible or open to the expertise that's really just sitting all around them in the form of what families know and what young people know, what educators, uh, frontline educators know and are able to bring to to that process. Uh, and so we wanted to put this book out in the world to help uh, people see a different path, um, that there's something beyond just surveys and focus groups that schools and districts can do to really open, throw open the doors to their institutions, to all of the incredible expertise that, that's around them. Landon, can you give an example of uh, some program, some initiative that is using some of these principles? Oh, I really, I'd love to. And again, thanks for having us on. Thanks for all the work you do to spread the word of innovative ideas and strategies out there. Um, Thank you. So we so one of the things I think we think is just really important is that um, we've now seen this happen in all different types of contexts around the entire country. And I think that there is this um, trope out there that says that working with the community is too slow, uh, too cumbersome, and can only work in certain contexts. But in the book, we have examples from rural Colorado, from uh, suburban parts of this country, from uh, Chicago, uh, from Georgia, Kentucky. Um, and the examples that we have are uh, illuminating something really important, whether it's in career and technical pathway build out, economic development on the plains of Colorado, or working statewide across Kentucky to reimagine assessment and accountability, or in Chicago with uh, bringing tons of new providers to the table to spread internet access for kids during the pandemic, that when you actually bring multiple stakeholders together and co-create in the way Donnie just talked about, that actually you get such a stronger, more durable, lasting uh, political outcome where more and more ideas are put inside of it. You know, the research is pretty clear on this in the business side, right? Um, more ideas um, create better products, create better understanding of what's possible for our cl clients and customers. And we think that our school system should really be aware of what their students want, what their families need, and the perspectives they're bringing to then actually inform the way these trajectory of these projects go. Donnie, we don't like to talk politics here, but this seems like this would be a political hot button for a lot of different sides. Well, 
I think it's uh, when we talk to school leaders all, all across the country and district leaders all across the country, we hear all the time that this refrain, I don't, I don't want to get involved in the politics uh, and I don't, I don't really want to uh, do politics. And we think that is based on maybe a, a little bit of a reductive idea about what politics really means. And fundamentally, school and district leaders are both um, public leaders, and their job is to really deeply understand what it is that the whole diversity of their communities, what do they want and what do they need, and then to actually do the leadership of weaving those needs and desires together into something, a, a set of shared goals that can focus the energy of the whole community and school uh, towards that common good. And we think that there's, you know, we, we've, we can convince ourselves that our positions are too far apart to ever find that common ground. But in all of the experiences and examples that Landon shared just a moment ago, we've seen leaders do this. We've seen leaders foster these conversations, real dialogue, not people yelling at each other, but really deep empathy-driven dialogue where they're trying to learn with and from each other and create something, a, create a, a surreal, a clear set of common goals that drive the work. And so we, we do think that uh, there's a part of this that's not about politics, but it is about being a, a public leader uh, that can marshal that kind of collective will. Well, Landon, how do you do that when the articles in the paper suggest that the last thing the school systems want is any openness that they're, you know, the whole, some of the issues, I don't want to get involved, but some of the yeah. issues with books and sexuality and all of this stuff. And then you hear that the school systems are trying to do stuff that doesn't seem open. How do, how do you handle that when you get this sort of pushback and criticism of the, the whole system? And it's not fair because you know, you're espousing for the exact opposite, but you're, you're part of the system. So we're going to lump you all together. Well, you know, it's, I, Jim, it's a really important question. And I think that uh, it comes up often when we're having conversations about this, because I think a lot of uh, kind of thinkers, commentators, researchers are really worried about kind of the amount of pressure our school system's under. And, you know, I think Donnie and I subscribe to the ancient stoic maxim of the obstacle is the way. Um, that actually leaning into the noise and the democracy building work that's critical at the local level in our society is essential right now. And it's true. There are actors um, that have divergent political viewpoints on the ground, both on the left, right and center. And our school system should be able to respond to them adaptively and responsibly and not build up new walls to keep them out, even when we fundamentally may disagree. Now, you know, we have some caveats that we talk about where it's like, you know, uh, violence and denying someone's right to exist. I mean, no, that you know, that's pretty extreme. But you know, we have to have smart conversations about these things, and we have to recognize that by putting walls up, we're actually cutting people off from the most fundamental democratic act that we all participate in, which is our education system. Um, we often think of elections as kind of the cornerstone of our democracy, and it's true. But the decision making we do in our side of our public system is actually emblematic of how we treat each other as a society. And if we say, nope, no room for outside expertise here, even when we have divergent opinions, we've seen leaders across the country actually open their systems up to these tough conversations 
it, you know, hasn't always been the, the most fun part of their job sometimes. And we're not saying open system work isn't harder sometimes, but fundamentally, if we resist, if we actually just go back to the closed system, then we're actually uh, cutting off our nose in spite of our face. All right, let's go a little bit off base here for a second, Donnie. I want to talk about technology overall. Uh, Bill Maher on TV, the HBO guy, right? He says that there should be one really good guy, woman, whatever, who teaches all 47,000 school districts who are learning Algebra 1 today. They all watch the same video and then... 40,000 teachers across the United States turn to individual students and say, now let's sit and do it together. And that there's a way to use technology to, to throw out the entire system and start over with something entirely different. What are your thoughts, Donnie, first on technology, AI, perhaps? How does all of this impact and how does that affect an open system? I think that the Khan Academies, for example, Maybe should replace some of the teachers that I have with my kids. What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I love this question. As somebody who spent a long time in the classroom, a long time in in uh, academic leadership at a number of districts, this this question is an important one for all of us to consider. I think what what young people and families want, if we're truly open to their voice, is they want uh, a school system that is responsive to who they are, is gives them relevant, authentic, and meaningful work to do, and that leaves them prepared for uh, a, a very dynamic and, uh, and sometimes uncertain world. And openness, uh, and what we say and what we think is that you can't get to that kind of a system that serves that need, that deep need that young people and families have and employers have, unless you're actually able to bring in the voices uh, and expertise and knowledge of the people whom you are meant to serve. And so the, whether the technology uh, is used to create the kind of system that you're talking about, uh, whether you know you, you have unfettered access to AI, or if you want to restrict it and do everything pencil and paper, those questions have to come through a process that meaningfully and deeply engages the young people, educators, communities, and families that uh, really the system is there to, to serve. Landon, your thoughts? Um, I think that, uh, you know, if I could go just a little bit off, because I agree with everything Donnie said, is I think it's pretty critical that we actually really um, do some pretty radical innovation around the teaching and learning structures that are in our education system right now. And I'm actually uh, quite a big fan of thinking differently about direct instruction, like you were talking about, Jim, and thinking differently on some of those levels. Um, and fundamentally, this is where the best reform initiatives uh, crash into the rocks and shoals of um, uh, kind of closed system design. And if uh, the best leaders understand that if they don't do what Donnie just uh, talked about, then uh, a year is gonna go by and there'll be a next big fad. 
Um, and so we have to really think strategically about this sort of uh, change management process. And that's what we're really trying to get to in the book is practices and principles for leaders, both inside and outside the system, to take on some of these real big questions. Because we are in a moment, 2023, where we have to take on some of these questions to radically reinvent and also um, make more relevant our modern education system. All right. Donnie, let's dive into the book a little bit and talk about the principles that are they are described. You have six principles, and I think it's important that we cover a little bit of that. I think number five is perhaps the most important, which is assembling abundant partnerships. Uh, comment on that, please. Because I sure. think that's the hardest one. I, 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 that's, I just think that's going to be really hard to do. I know you've had success with it. Donnie? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we think that this is it's really an important step. Assembling abundance partnerships is it, the arc of the of the principles really goes through three different phases. There are six principles, but the first two, activate open leadership and know your community, are really about um, uh, preparing. Really, like to understand the system, prepare the kind of open opportunity that you're going to try to sort of bring into existence, uh, design breakthrough spaces and model creative democracy uh, are really about provoking the, the system and doing the open work. But assemble abundance partnerships and expand openness are really about propelling that, uh, that propelling that forward and taking the momentum that comes from that initial win and making it proliferate throughout the system. And assembling abundance partnerships is a critical part of that because what we know is that school systems alone can't do uh, completely on their own everything that they ask, we ask them to do. And that the only way to really serve the communities that we're in, in an open way, is to find partnerships and, and cultivate them that really could with organizations and um, uh, throughout the community. And those relationships and those partnerships have to really be based on the idea of abundance, that there is really enough powerful work and resources for us all. And that we, if we're really clear with one another about who's going to do what, who's going to get what resources, and really short-circuit some of the scarcity thinking that can undermine partnerships, we can really proliferate openness throughout a system. You know, I was telling you that I was in for-profit education decades ago. The business, we were in computer summer camp, so we had to have a lot of computers around that cost at that time four, five, six thousand dollars each. And right. uh it was really hard. And one of our biggest problems was finding the partnerships and developing the relationships every year we went to comdex in vegas and walked around as the only education company there trying to get all of the technology partners available to sponsor us and eventually we did we had everybody you know intel and microsoft and hp and lego and hewlett packard and uh nasa the swatch company everybody but it was still hard to get the big money out of them. And we finally were able to do that. And we had someone who contributed four or $5 million a year of computers. That company's out of business now, but the partnership was always so, uh, so important to us. 
it seems to me that the hard part of this is that uh, most companies want something in in return. They they have to have something in return to justify it, right? How do you deal right. with Landon? The financial realities that some of these partnerships are maybe in their perception one sided. I think it's a really important question. We talk about the different types of scarcities that are going to interrupt and potentially destabilize partnerships. And uh, financial is a real key part of it. Operational credit, credit, who's getting the credit, um, what sort of capacity people are deploying onto those pieces. Um, and I think one of the things that we really want people to challenge is that we've seen when people actually approach an, from an abundance frame or like an abundant opportunity frame versus a scarcity frame with a significant amount of clarity so much. And Jim, I'd be interested in your perspective on your project that seems really cool and I'd love to learn a lot more about um, it. You know, so much of that in our experience has been people being afraid to have clear conversations about the type of dollars we're talking about, where it's going, who's doing what, when they're doing it, and can people see opportunity for others to win down the road versus it just being a zero sum dollars right here, right now idea. And I think this is especially important in education and public systems. Um, people often say, well, we don't have all the money in the world in education, but I've been around the block enough times and Donnie has too, where we've literally watched school systems start the year saying they have no money, then have a ton of money by the middle of the year, and then have a completely different financial picture mid-spring. Um, that's not to say our education system doesn't need more smart strategic investment, but we do think that sometimes scarcity thinking permeates more than scarcity reality. See, as an outsider, and I may offend both of you with this, sorry, I think you have too much damn money. I think that if you gave me, for example, an entrepreneur, 12 grand a year per kid, that I could do better than what the system is doing today. Um, I don't know. I'm just biased that way. I guess I'm egotistical. I'm sorry if I insulted both of you. They just both hung up, apparently. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was teasing. It, yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think, Jim, to, to that question, I think we that's why we want these like powerful partnerships that span the boundaries between schools and districts and communities and businesses and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs because there there is a tremendous amount uh, of resources and expertise across all of these groups uh, and right now they're just not as unified coordinated integrated um or really open to one another as they need to be right uh, to really take advantage of some of those resources that you're talking about Yes. Yes. The the silos and the fighting are incredible uh and it's sad to see. So you know, I I'm just in shock that we can't all do the basics. So before we came on the air, Donnie and I were discussing that Donnie's on the board of a school around the corner from where my kids go to school. My kids go to school listeners at a, a technology school. It's called an innovation Academy, I think. And it's supported by the school system, Fulton County, the same one that just indicted somebody famous and Fulton County, though their public education runs this innovation Academy. It's a lottery thing to get in, but I'll be honest with you. Everyone I know who's wanted to get in, got in. Um, and you know, it's just such an incredible school. Donnie's on the board of a very, very similar school, literally right around the corner. And these schools are devoted to 
the future, the place where my kids go, they're learning Python, for God's sakes. You know, every kid in America should be learning Python. How can we still be debating that? Donnie, this is your final word. Go. Well, uh, I love the school that your your kids go to, Jim, and uh, I've been proud to serve on the board of, of the school that's around the corner. Um, we we just really believe that any school can really become future oriented uh, if it brings in the community to have that conversation about what that even means. What does it mean for all of us to focus our energy on the world that's coming, not the world that we're leaving behind? Uh, and that's a conversation that can't be had just with a small group at central office or just your leadership team at, at a school site. That's a conversation that really needs to involve the broadest and most inclusive cross-section of your community that you can bring together. Uh, and we think that there's real, that's more than just bringing people into a room. There has to be really thoughtful planning and facilitation and, and great follow-through uh, on all, all of that. And fundamentally, Jim, that's, that is the purpose of our book, is to help more educational leaders uh, have those kinds of conversations uh, and take us into the future that you're talking about. Landon, final words. Um, the final word is that an open future is possible, that uh, reimagining our public systems, including education, is the great work of our time, and that it's going to require folks, both public and private, to join together to reimagine together at the local level. Every community is different. Um, every journey is going to be a different journey, um, but the reality is, and this is why the book's out there, and you can learn more at uh, www.theopensystem.org, um, the practices work, um, and they work in different contexts, and we can't wait to learn from our folks that are in your listener group, Jim, or including yourself, about um, how you're doing this all over the country. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for being with us. A very valuable conversation, and I hope, I hope you change some minds and make a difference i know you will thank you so much for being with us uh again give us the url donnie you want us to go to sure www.theopensystem.org fantastic landon donnie thank you so much for being with us great stuff thanks jen take it easy thanks for what you do we're out of time but we're back tomorrow be safe everyone take care go educate your kids and go make a million dollars we're out of here bye now <laughs>